Today's episode is brought to you by Yelp, whose mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They're also helping me connect with you, which is totally awesome. Now here we go. Of course, when we get back to in-person events, guess what's going to stick around? It's going to be the virtual events. It's actually growing some people's businesses. One of our clients has a 250-person event every year at a hotel for three or four days. They can't meet in person, and guess how many people are going to come to her event virtually? 2,000. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. If hosting this show has made one thing incredibly clear, it's that teamwork, data, and resources will be what help us thrive post-pandemic. Understanding that, Yelp and I have created a cheat sheet, offering insight into consumer behavior, popular trends, and free tools and resources to help you get open and stay open. You can download that guide at joshcopel.com forward slash resources. Didn't write that down? There's a link in the show notes as well. People won't be hanging out in large groups for a very, very long time. It's a tough pill for me to swallow and I'm not even in that sector of the industry. Event planners are gonna need to get scrappy if they're gonna find any work in the coming year. One event planner I'm not worried about is Natasha Miller. She embodies the word resilience and has taken her events company digital. Today, she unveils the bleeding edge of virtual events, marrying together work and play. And people are worried about losing their businesses. People are worried that they'll end up homeless. They don't know how they're going to support their families. And, and to provide context for the people listening, you have been homeless and you have struggled to support your family. So I was 16 when I um, was basically um, abandoned by my family. There's much more to it, but that's just the clean break of how I got to this youth homeless shelter. And then um, I figured out that I could get myself out because I was abandoned, did not a runaway. And I learned my rights, my legal rights at 16 years old, which was that I didn't need to be held at this place. I was free to go, but at 16, where do you go? I had a job, but you know, I think I was working for um, a retirement home. Interestingly enough, when this pandemic occurred, I was right back in the mindset of the panic of the little girl that got dropped off on Christmas Eve night at the youth shelter. And it was the scariest panic-driven feeling. And I literally, I remember, you know, I live in Union, or I lived in Union Square in San Francisco, really posh place, down the street from Hermes and Prada and such. And at seven o'clock, when you walk down that street, all the shops are closed and the homeless people go and claim their doorway, right? As I walk home, I would always say to myself, I can do, I can do that if I need to. Like, I understand why they're choosing this spot and curling up now. I've never slept on the street, so. But mentally, I'm always preparing for the worst. And then the worst happened. I, it was definitely an internal manic situation which I don't think is too terribly different from how a lot of entrepreneurs felt at the time, even if they didn't have my experience. Those first two weeks, I would say those first two days, I was counting on every single skill that I had that I could use to make money 
to support myself and my daughter's living with me now, forgetting how much money I actually have in the bank, <laughs> forgetting that I've built this you know, profitable multi-million dollar company that will eventually come back up. None of that though was of comfort during those first couple of days. Well, and your ground game has always been strong. You've been really aggressive. One of the things that, that I love about you is that you're an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur first, um, but you chose to live in the event space. Can you tell me why and a little bit of background on that? Yes, absolutely an accident and one that I could never have imagined. So I was a professional classical violinist and a professional jazz vocalist. I have seven CDs out. I toured, I was playing for, I was the talent, I was the hired help for social and corporate events since I was 15. And um, when I was, let's say about 20 years ago, because I was being booked so often on the same night, I decided to say, if you were my client and you called me and said, Are you, can you do our wedding on October 13th? I would say, you know what, I'm booked already, but I'll bring in a group that's just like me, but probably better and I'll manage them. And so at a young age, 20 years ago, actually it was longer than that, I was making a lot of money on these weekends. I was performing, but then three other groups may have been performing for me. And so that unofficially started Entire Productions. And then I officially started Entire Productions in about the year 2001 and really focused on jazz and classical groups and then started getting requ you know, requests to do um, ethnic music festivals, um, blues, DJs, dance bands. And these were slightly outside of my realm and slightly outside of my comfort zone. But as hopefully you will read my book when it comes out, my, the whole common thread of my story is fake it until you make it. So the answer was always, yes, I can do that. Someone said to me, oh, can you book Alita Adams? for this big festival. And Alita Adams um, was a very, very popular, successful um, R&B singer, but um, she's a headliner. So you have to call their agents and it's a whole nother world than just booking someone local. And the question was without blinking, without batting an eye, yes. And then I figured out how to do it. I then transitioned from producing and providing entertainment of every genre, of every discipline, from local to headliners, to producing people's events for them. And the reason why people wanted us to do that, we certainly didn't go out and ask people to do that for them. They saw how organized we were and so um, attention to detail, which was a great thing. But if you think about it, once we started producing events, we're then, what are we doing? We're sabotaging ourselves against our bread and butter. Um, we could be likely maybe taking clients from other people, or but we never had to do that. And so funny enough, and thank goodness, our quote-unquote competitors are still coming to us for entertainment. Now, pre-COVID in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where you know most of our business is, there was so much business that no one had time to go and try to steal a client from someone. Mm -hmm. So it was all nice. I read this quote saying that it took Warren Buffett nine years to make his first million dollars. And that's not a book anyone's interested in reading, <laughs> right? Because everybody wants to get rich quick. Um, and it was a process for you too. 
And it was. And I didn't care about being rich, though, at first. For and sure. I, didn't, I didn't care about being rich until recently when I realized that I really need to really be able to take care of myself in retirement. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm like, oh, shoot. I have mm-hmm. to save $100,000 a year minimum in order for me to you know, continue to live in San Francisco. Part of the way you're hedging the bet is education, right? That you are constantly investing and reinvesting in yourself. Um, let's talk about that. But I want to talk about your educational process and your sure. educational path. Talk to me about the importance of education and your educational path over the course of, let's say, the last 10 years. So I did attend college for a bit on a violin performance scholarship. I didn't graduate. And then the whole first next 15 years of my business, I winged it. I was self-taught. I didn't really look for too much outside help, advisement, mentors. I was very proud of doing it on my own. Then (laughs) I ran into this course called the Goldman Sachs 10K SB and attended it at Babson College in Boston. And wow, did it blow my mind. We were already a couple million dollars in revenue at that time. And I had an accountant, but so much was doing, so much of the business was by gut instinct still. And I learned so much and I was terrified of the accounting financial um, segments. I just thought, oh my God, I don't even know Josh, it's embarrassing to say, I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to read a financial statement. I didn't know what was great. And honestly, I didn't really care. Right. That's not a great way to scale and grow a business. (laughs) But that really, that course just set me on fire. And I think those next two years after that course, we grew 65% each year. It's incredible. It was, blew my mind. But I'm the kind of person now or, or starting then where as I'm getting information in from an advisor, from a teacher, professor, from a course, sometimes I'm putting it into play while, I'm, while it's being fed to me. Mm-hmm. And, and the, way I, the way I do that is as it's coming to me, I might be emailing my team. I might be texting Now, I've learned to chill out a bit uh, because since then, through Entrepreneurs Organization that we're both a member of, Mm -hmm. I was able to be part of a class at at MIT. It's a three-year course. I am through one year. um, And we were really given such incredible information by great, very successful um, speakers. And we're really told... This is a fire hose amount of information. Please do not go back to your teams and just like tell them everything and change everything at once. It will not be good for you. Mm-hmm. And they're right. And then following that, I had the opportunity to attend the entrepreneurial master's class at Harvard through Entrepreneurs Organization in the same year. And I thought to myself, is that too much in one year? Was it? it? It was a lot of information But I'm so glad I did it because if you think about where we're at right now, I have, first of all, I have a network of 95 um, entrepreneurs from all over the world that basically run our world. I know one guy now that makes all of the parts that our hair dryers and curlers are made of. Hair, Mm -hmm. hair, right? Do I need that? I don't know. Maybe I do. So both with the MIT group and the Harvard group, 
I have access to all these incredible entrepreneurs from all over the world, so many different segments. Um, in addition to that group of entrepreneurs that I had just in our chapter, um, and then so much information. So I'm glad that I did them in one year, um, you know, did the two programs at once. And now I'm always looking for incredible learning opportunities. Let's flash to January 2020. What okay. did your life look like? And what were your goals for the year? Oh my gosh, I was so excited. We had such a great yearly, you know, first year team kickoff with all these great goals. And we were only going to try to grow by 25% this year. We had divided our company into two separate um, complete divisions, one entertainment production, the other event production. We had people on either side not crossing over. That was a very grown-up thing that we did with the company. We started um, with an implementer of EOS Traction. Emily is our implementer. I was so excited about like really getting down to the nuts and bolts of putting that into our company, even though I had been doing many aspects of it uh, on my own. It was just full force ahead. We were planning our biggest event of the year that we do every year. This year, it would have been quadruple the size of the venue and mm -hmm. over 800 of our um, clients and potential clients come to this event every year. And this event's date was March 17th. We've been mm -hmm. planning it since December the year before. So January was okay, we're all back from break, let's hit it hard. And so we're planning this incredible experientially designed just mega event that literally retail cost would be $500,000. And everyone was started to say, you know, are we doing it? Are we doing it? And I kept saying just so stoic, stoically, yes, we're doing it. You know, and unless the city set, shuts down the venue, that will be our, our notification that we're not doing it. But two weeks before, I started thinking, oh, no, we're in trouble. And if I don't pull the plug on this event now, the caterer will have spent many thousands of dollars on, on goods to start cooking. The florists. I started thinking about everyone's expenses, and I shut it down. And yeah. thank God I did, because we were shut down as a city on March 16th. Well, in, in March 16th, the pandemic, the pandemic is officially hit, right? That's, that, that's when we know that the party is over. What was, what was your initial reaction? My, my initial reaction was panic. And we were one of the first um, entities to get shut down. So as I was telling my um, person at WeWork, oh my gosh, you know, I have a $5,500 rent every month. You know, please don't tell anyone that I'm going to have to cancel. I mean, that was, that was really hard to do because no one, was, no one was feeling it yet. People that had, you know, that had businesses that relied on people getting together in person. Mm -hmm. And um, when it fully shut down, I realized that I had to make some very difficult choices regarding my team especially if you think about how I divided it. I had a whole team on slate to do work that wasn't going to happen for over a year now. Mm -hmm. Now, did we know back then it was going to be, you know, as long? No. So yeah, it was panic and it was um, sorrow. I just, I felt horrible, but I felt just this energy, it, very nervous energy. I didn't, 
yet feel the excitement and release in creativity. Not quite yet. Well, and let's let's jump to that because it, you know they, there was good that came out of this, and I, I think that your perspective is important. And I think it's something that, that people need to hear and that we should share with the audience. All in all, how do you feel about your life relative to the fact that your business went to literally zero back in March? So today I can say for sure, um, there are major elements of what happened to all of us that I'm incredibly thankful for. The time to step back, the time to reflect on what I achieved how I achieved it, but then also to see, since business was so good and so fast, we, were, we had holes in the business that I don't know if I'd ever really see had it not been stripped down. Mm-hmm. So I feel today similar to what I felt about three weeks after we all shut down. And that is my creative juices are flowing, ideation, um, creating all new things, making things better. Is so exciting. I just sometimes, sometimes even now, I'm home alone. I don't have to go anywhere. There's not enough time in the day to get mm. my ideas going. Now, that being said, I had about nine projects. Actually, I was speaking to Jason Pfeiffer, the um, editor of Entrepreneur Magazine, on his podcast. And I'm so embarrassed, but also proud of all the things I rattled off in mm-hmm. late March that I was attempting to do. I sounded a little crazy. But some of them are actually completely into fruition now. Oh, crazy like a fox, because some of it's working. I mean, I, I've watched you make 100 pivots over the last four months. Can you run us through uh, several of those pivots and what's worked and then what you think hasn't? You know what? Nothing's not worked yet. So let me tell you, um, one of the things that I wanted to do was to not just get into virtual events. That was a given that we would have to pivot to that. But what I did, and it was beautiful, it felt similar to writing a song that I knew was a great song with a great hook. Mm -hmm. I created this variety show platform of how businesses, corporations could run their events or disseminate their messages. So they're quicker, faster paced segments with um, both education, thought leaders, tastemakers, but also entertainment, you know, interspersed uh, with whatever messaging they want to do. I created a deck before we'd even done any kind of um, proof of concept marketing because that's me. What did I do? I faked it till I made it. I was selling this before we even had a concept ready to show them. And we had a show go live two weeks after I had that idea. And it's actually the show that I interviewed our, our friend in common, Daniel Shemtab on. Uh-huh. And I'm so proud of it. And I can't tell you how much business we've been able to get from that one idea I had that I turned into reality into two weeks later. And it's really what it is, if you think about it, for us internally, it's an internal marketing event that we do every month. But we can sell it, the, the thought of it and the, the nuts and bolts and the performance and, and such to our clients. And we're solving a problem for them. It's like solving the world's problems. That answers the question though, right? Because the question you asked yourself going into it was, how can I still be of service to the people that need the value I provide, right? 
It is. And I was also noticing these long Zoom calls um, that were frustrating because they were much longer than they needed to be. And someone, um, after I started the variety show, I engaged in a show it's not a show, an event that Vern Harnish did with 10 or 12 speakers. And he gave them each 10 minutes of time. And mm -hmm. I paid for that, um, a, a nominal amount, but still there's so much free stuff out there. I paid for this mm -hmm. and I was blown away at how much incredible, um, concise information that was useful to me. I could get from these leaders in just 10 minutes. But Vern had to work very hard, I'm sure, to really focus them. And they may have been told, you have 10 minutes, get three points across, be succinct, we're cutting you off at 10, you know, and it just yeah. to be of service to the world, to our clients, but also create an experience for myself that I knew I wanted to, to be involved in. Well, and to make money. I mean, Lord, Lord knows that we're not talking about money in, in terms of greed, but yeah. you, you've created a financially viable solution within the event space, uh, and you did it in a matter of weeks. It, that sounds a little more miraculous than the reality. <laughs> I had the idea. I started the proof of concept, and then I started selling. Well, I started selling it to people before we even had it, and it has culminatively brought in business. And yes, I had a million dollar payroll before COVID. That is mm. not how big it is now. Sure. Um, but I still have employees to pay and expenses to pay. And yes, I need to make some revenue. But our number one goal, Josh, is to keep ourselves top of mind of our current client base so that when in-person events come back up, we're going to be the first ones they think of. In the meantime, we want to serve them with the virtual event planning and entertainment if they need it. Of course, when we get back to in-person events, guess what's going to stick around? It's going to be the virtual events. It's actually growing some people's businesses. One of our clients has a 250-person event every year at a hotel for three or four days. They can't meet in person. And guess how many people are going to come to her event virtually? 2,000. I was going to say, that was going to be my next question. Is it, is it, are there elements of what you're doing today that are here to stay? I think they're here to stay forever. And I think I, I see hybrid events happening um, as soon as we can do in person. They'll be pretty prominent. But I think as we taper off hopefully never having a pandemic again. Um, they'll be a little less um, prominent because really that human connection is so important. But for people that wanna attend an event from across the world, you know, if you're, if you're a business and you're not adding a virtual component, maybe you have to have bumper lanes or caveats. Like if the event's in San Francisco, you can't do the virtual event or if you do want to do the virtual event instead of in person, you have to pay double, you know, mm -hmm. something like that. But if you live 5,000 miles away, then you can do it, right? There'll be right. some sort of things that people come up with. But yeah, I, it's here to stay. And guess what? I don't know. I don't know. So I love technology, but we didn't do a lot of virtual um, event things. So I don't think if we didn't have this crisis and pandemic, that I would be as well-versed in virtual technology as I am. Do you think you're going to see the same, the same permanent closure rate that we do in the restaurant industry? We're looking at like 53% of 
of all restaurants are going to permanently close. You think you're going to see the same thing in the event space? So when you're talking about event space, I'm going to think not just planners and entertainment, but caterers. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Venues, florists. I think that that number feels pretty possible, depending on how long this lasts. Um, I just joined um, something called the California Events Coalition, and it's a bunch of planners that got together because we're not represented in um, government and in our industry very well. I know that restaurants, you know, you guys have a pretty strong, um, you know, group of people fighting for for rights and such, Mm -hmm. restaurants and bars. Um, You know, there are other sectors that have a lot of lobbying and a lot of pull. The events industry really doesn't. So I'm just at the precipice of this um, alliance and I'm on their executive advisory board. We just had our first meeting today. So I'm going to be participating in trying to get back to work. And gosh, you know, I look, a lot of businesses that I see that are going to go out of business, they're kind of like older businesses that are like, okay, we've done our thing. We've placed our mark on the map. I think it's time to hang it up. I think the younger businesses will be a little more quick to pivot and maybe can hold on a little longer. It really depends on their overhead. Overhead and payroll cash is king. If you don't have the cash, it's over. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guest an opportunity to speak directly to the industry. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement for the folks listening? I do. I would say that if you're not already feeling and experiencing the positive attributes that this time could be affording you, to really consider that um, as a possibility. And if you need to go outside and walk in a neighborhood you've never been to, or just in a place where your mind can wander and really challenge yourself to find some creative aspects um, and look at things that you want to do that you thought you'd never get to and maybe surprise yourself with doing something you never thought in in a million years you would ever be involved in. That's Natasha Miller of Entire Productions. Check out Natasha's past and upcoming projects. Go to entireproductions.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.